Martin Luther's sermon on Epiphany, his first sermon, preached at the parish church in the morning in the year 1532, the text, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that's born king of the Jews? For we have seen a star in the east, and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, and said, Go, and search diligently for the young child. And when ye have found him, bring me word again, that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed, and, lo, the star, which they saw in the east, went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy, and when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. Luther's Sermon about the history. There is much to preach about in connection with this festival, namely, the stories of the wise men, Christ's baptism, also his first miracle, which was performed at the wedding in Cana in Galilee. For this reason, today's festival has also been called the Festival of the Epiphany of Christ, for some believe that these three manifestations occurred on the same day, no, though not in the same year. The first, that the Lord Christ manifested himself to the wise men of the Orient by agency of the star. The second, that the Godhead manifested itself at Jordan when Christ was baptized by John. And third, that Christ manifested his glory at Cana in Galilee when he changed water into wine at the wedding. Whether or not these manifestations occurred on the same day, they still are very precious stories and wonderful manifestations about which it is well worth our while to preach, ponder, and learn. First, then, let's deal with this gospel that tells the wonderful account of and the manifestation to the wise men of Arabia, or the Orient. Though this through this story the Lord wanted to make known and validate his coming, not only among the Jews, but also among the Gentiles, so that everybody might know that he existed, that none could make the excuse or be allowed to say he had kept himself hidden, so that nobody could have known about him. This event, however, occurred especially for the sake of the Jews as a testimony, so that they would have no excuse or be able to say that they had not known. For since it was determined that he would not come in great pomp as a worldly king, but in wretchedness and poverty, his coming was especially troubling, as the prophet Zechariah foretold concerning him, to be born on earth at a time when he found no room in the inn, be laid in a manger, and so on. The Jews took offense this then, and do so still today. His coming and his birth were announced and proclaimed so clearly and emphatically that the Jews could not make the allegation, how in the world were we supposed to recognize and welcome him since the things went so badly for him? Instead, they had to confess, It is true he comes in wretchedness and poverty, but he is preached and proclaimed gloriously. 
This magnificent testimony the Jews should have believed, for both time and place agreed with what the prophets proclaimed long before, and all the details in the account tally. The angels in the sky above the field, the shepherds at Bethlehem, Simeon and Anna in the temple at Jerusalem, all bear witness to him. Most wonderfully, the Jews are given the word firsthand so that they might be informed. Especially remarkable and powerful, however, is the witness of the Gentiles, for the wise men come to the royal city of Jerusalem from a foreign country and spread abroad the story about the newborn king to such an extent that Herod becomes terrified and all Jerusalem is stirred up because of it. For that reason the king asked them where Christ was to be born, and they cite for him Scripture's answer, giving him the name of the city. Accordingly, first from Scripture, and then by seeing for themselves, and finally through the wise men, they know incon incontrovertibly about this birth. This example to wise men serves us Gentiles well also, for it occurred and was recorded, so that there might be no confusion for us concerning this event. If we want to seek and find this child, we must believe the word, stick to it, and not allow ourselves to be diverted from it. If we disregard the word, the offense has already occurred. For the child is so humble and wretched to look at, it is impossible for one to approach by one's reason apart from the word. Reason and worldly wisdom cannot comprehend or believe that this child, who can find no room where he might be born, is a king and a lord, a king so great that he is the world's savior. It is meant to be preached through the word and comprehended in the word and to enter our hearts so that we believe it. And, at his uh, and as his birth is poor and wretched, so his entire life is likewise nothing but poverty, privation, suffering, misery, shame, and disgrace. The one who loses the word and merely with human eyes regards him lying in the manger, in the stable, and so on, has already lost him. Now this occurs especially when the devil gets in and in the act and fabricates for us a false Christ, so that in our thoughts we picture Christ as we would like him to be, just like our fanatics and papists do. They renounce the word, and as a result cannot welcome or accept him as he lies there before their eyes, but make him out to be a judge and jailkeeper, that he should be the only Savior. That is what displeases them about him. For this reason they add to this their own works and acts of devotion, which they propose to have alongside Christ the Savior. Also they prayed the Virgin Mary to press her son to her breast and to appease him. They think such prayer and intercession should also have saving power, but this is nothing more than deception. For when a person abandons the word and gropes about for Christ apart from the word, he misses Christ and apprehends the devil. He prattles so much before the eyes of people that they think he is the true Christ, while being only the accursed devil. That was our experience under the papacy. When we were engulfed with such thoughts, we taught and proceeded under the idea that whoever wants to stand before Christ must have the benefit of the saint's intercession. I myself had more confidence in the goodness and intercession of the Virgin Mary than in Christ's grace and intercession. We viewed him as painters paint him, sitting on a rainbow as a judge. Like the graphic portrayal in oil, so was the perception in our heart. Accordingly, we were led astray. We fell from faith and fled from Christ, in whom we should rather have taken refuge. We were merely affected by the story that he had come into the world. Nothing was said about at all about why and for what purpose he had come. 
That is the way it goes when one does not adhere to the word. This is the key element, especially to the devil, as he seeks ways to tear us away from the word, and then, apart from the word, leads us to think our own thoughts. For then he knows that he has won, and we have lost. Accordingly, the wise men come first to Jerusalem, seeking Christ. By divine revelation, they knew that the king of the Jews had been born, and so their reason leads them to Jerusalem, for they think like this. Nowhere but at Jerusalem, in a magnificent castle and in a golden room, does one find the king of the Jews. He sits there on a royal throne, and many men clad in armor are assigned there to attend him. Indeed, how else would reason think about a king? However, such thoughts, conceived as they are apart from the word, do not comprehend Christ aright. That is the reason the wise men go awry in their thinking and do not find this child in Jerusalem, and at, uh, at that time still the holy city, God's temple and dwelling. However, if they are able to find the child, they must follow the word, which is the right star and the beautiful sun pointing to Christ. Since Christ does not want to be found apart from his word, even in Jerusalem, which is still his seat, we ought to cleave to the word and dismiss all thoughts to the contrary. Our fanatics ignore the word, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. They scramble up above the clouds and seek him in heaven, but fail to find him. True, heaven is his temple and his throne, as the prophet Isaiah states in chapter 66, verse 1. However, to put it briefly, you won't have access to him in heaven, for it is locked, since you are restricted to knowing God and Christ only in the word. If you do not stick to the word, you cannot find God or Christ, and you are lost. It is my hope that both I, myself, as well as others, will firmly believe this. For the devil's whole deceitful agenda is attuned to tearing us away from the word. If he does not accomplish it by causing people to refuse to hear the public preaching of the word, he works on the heart to get it unglued from the word. I cannot bring out fanatics to the point of discerning God's word in the sacraments, likewise to honor father, mother, prince, government, and so on. Instead, they form inadequate opinions about what they see, just like a cow that looks at a new gate. Are father, mother, prince better than I, they ask? Also in their minds, the Lord's Supper is mere bread and wine, for to their way of thinking, the word is apart from the elements. For this reason, they go on to say, What is the benefit of bread and wine? And though it be Christ's flesh, it still is of no benefit. That's why they end up receiving only the husk but the kernel, the word, they leave behind. The same thing happens to the Jews. They witnessed Christ's miracles and heard his preaching, but because they did not pay heed to the word, they were not benefited. The same is true for our fanatics. They retain the husk, but lose the kernel. True, when one looks at father, mother, men, women, princes, or government, there is no difference between them and other people. They too have flesh and blood. Similarly, when one assesses the Lord's Supper, apart from the word, reason finds nothing more than bread and wine. However, dear friend, here you must listen to the word and believe it. It says to you, Thou shalt honor thy father and thy mother. Servants, obey in all things your masters, according to the flesh. Colossians 3.22 Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors, unto them that are sent by him. 1 Peter 2 Verses 13 and 14. If you say that the flesh is of no benefit, then I respond, Listen to the word and believe it. It is beneficial to you, for the words which Christ speaks are spirit and life. Everything that Christ does is comprehended in the word. 
In and through the word, he wants to give us all things. And apart from the word, he grants us nothing. The greatest and foremost skill, no matter who the person is, is to cling firmly to the word and conceive of things of God in no other way than as the word tells us. For this reason, we should accustom ourselves to know nothing about God and Christ apart from the word. If we have the word, we ought to stand firmly on it and say, You may want to make Christ a judge or jailer, but his word states, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I am sticking to the word. We, therefore, should not try to pry into the hidden things concerning Christ's rule over his kingdom and so on, but simply adhere to the word as he deals with us in the preaching of his gospel, in baptism, absolution, and the Lord's Supper. Whenever one abandons the word and speculates, without and apart from the word, reason becomes a very uncertain, slippery thing. Thus the wise men miscalculated then. The way they think about Christ is that if he is the king of the Jews, he will occupy the royal city and castle. So they head straight for Jerusalem, but when they arrive there, they find that they have erred. What to do? They refer to the scriptures, according to which the Jews knew that the king of the Jews is not to be born in Jerusalem, but in Bethlehem of Judea, as recorded in the prophet Micah. The word is a trustworthy star, and it guides them straight to Christ. Without and apart from the word, they would not have found Christ the king. Now Bethlehem was, so to speak, a cowshed compared with Jerusalem, for Jerusalem was the chief city of the Jewish people in Bethlehem, but a speck on the map. However, it was prophesied that Christ was to come from the family of David, but from the time of the captivity the people of Israel were now so scattered that no tribe had his own territory anymore. Before the captivity the tribes had precise boundaries, each had its own place, but after the captivity this demarcation was set aside and the whole populace was mixed into one lump. For this reason, the descendants of David were difficult to find. Mary and Joseph were of the house of David, but they lived at Nazareth in the region of Asher and Naphtali, and yet belonged to Judah. In this way, all the people were intermingled. Accordingly, through the, months, through the mouths of his prophets, God has, had expressed it so precisely that all the people of the various tribes were now intermingled, some here, some there. Nevertheless, Christ was to come from the region where David had been born and lived as the prophet Micah states, from the tribe of Judah and from the town of Bethlehem. All this was conceived to comfort the Jews because families and tribes were so intermingled at the time was now at hand for Christ to be born. Consider how troubling and ironic this was. The Jews know the family, the tribe, the place, the city, and, the point, and point it all out to King Herod. Still, they do not believe. For had they believed, they would have gone to Bethlehem However, the wise men and strangers from the Orient believe, and believe so firmly that they leave the royal city of Jerusalem and head for the town of Bethlehem. They might have said, This is ridiculous. If we can't find the king of the Jews in the temple, in the house of his God, in Jerusalem, we certainly should not have to look for him in the town of Bethlehem. Where else should we locate him except where his God, who has sent him, has his dwelling? Now we are being steered away from Jerusalem, from the temple, from God's dwelling, to the shabby little town of Bethlehem. If the king is that badly off, he will be hard to find. If we can't find him in his kingdom and where his God is, we won't find him anywhere else either. They may have spoken this way, but they stick to the word of the prophet. Out of Bethlehem shall come a governor. To the Jews this was as offensive as if the prophet were greater than the temple at Jerusalem then he was allowed to say that Bethlehem, out of Bethlehem, a governor would be born. Therefore, as far as they were concerned, the prophet had to be the greatest heretic. 
When the king of the Jews comes, they thought, he will not abandon the temple where God is worshipped and be born elsewhere, but it was not to be the temple and the center of worship according to the prophet. For Bethlehem would produce this governor. The wise men's faith is thus exceedingly beautiful in that it transcends this troubling dilemma, and they are not offended because the king of the Jews passes by his temple and center of worship and chooses the town of Bethlehem where the inhabitants were simple peasants, hardly to be compared with the erudite bourgeoisie of Jerusalem. What thoughts went through their minds? Without a doubt, mixed up opinions and questions like this. We are looking for the king of the Jews, and they steer us away from the temple to a cow town. Do people think that we are fools, with no understanding? It was undoubtedly natural for them to think this way. However, faith sets aside all such notions. And they do not care whether Christ is to be found in the temple with the entire Jewish priesthood, or in the royal palace with the heads of state. They simply follow the word and go to Bethlehem. The same phenomenon is true among us, too. All the world looks for the Christian church at a council with the Pope and his retinue. But try to locate the Christian church by a council, and Pope is like the wise men trying to find Christ in Jerusalem. If you say, the Pope certainly possesses scripture, his office, and authority, how could that be wrong? The answer is, were not the temple and God himself also at Jerusalem? And still they figured wrong. So as things go, our experience with a council, pope, and bishops is the same as that which the wise men had with the high priests and scribes at Jerusalem. It's important for them to come to Jerusalem, headquarters both for the government and the priesthood, yes, also God's temple, and yet they would not find Christ there. God purposes things in his own way because he wants us to cling solely to his word and learn to disdain the great clamor about church, church, fathers, fathers, and the church cannot err, the church cannot err. Well, then, if the church cannot err, you and I can err and go to where God is and still not find God there. For this reason, we must learn to turn a blind eye to church, fathers, temple, priesthood, Jerusalem, God's people, and the like, and listen only to what God says in his word. The wise men accordingly stick to the word which they have heard from the prophet. This very word is their light and guide that unravels all their perplexities. So it is, by God's great overflowing grace, that the Gentiles, having neither temple nor priesthood, neither circumcision nor the law, and being strangers to divine worship and the testament of promise, stumble upon the word of the prophet and stick to it so firmly that they permit no other thoughts to bewilder them, but remain strictly with the word and follow it. On the other hand, it is exceedingly incriminating for the Jews, who had the law, divine worship, and the promises according to which Christ became incarnate, to be so obdurate that they refuse to believe the word even though they apprise others of it. However, at the the wise men had heard the word of the prophet. God gives them also a sign from heaven. The star reappears as soon as they leave Jerusalem, pointing out the way to Bethlehem to the very place where the child was, and they certainly needed such a sign. For when they come to the town of Bethlehem, inquiring after a king, they find Mary and Joseph, who are like beggars, and the child lying in a manger, everything very lowly, miserable, and beggar-like. They might have had 
reasonably demanded, Is this the king of the Jews? How could he be treated so shabbily? Are the people here nothing but rude clodhoppers, and no one even gives him a drink of water in his own land? Since his own people show him no honor, why should we believe in him? Who knows whether what is said about him is true? If it were true, surely the high priest would come from Jerusalem and embrace him, but the pious wise men allowed nothing to dissuade them. They hold fast to what they have heard from the prophet Micah and discern by the star. That is strong faith. The wise men listen only to what comes from the mouth of the prophet Micah, cling firmly to his word, giving credence to nothing else. Had I been there, I would have held with the temple and said, There is where God dwells, and if the child is to be found anywhere in the whole world, it would certainly have to be there where the priesthood and divine worship are. For this king, in thinking of the entire priesthood, intended to establish another kingdom and divine worship, and it was, in fact, to begin in here. For the Jews counted on their kingdom or priesthood and relied on the temple because they had Moses, the law, priests, Levites, and were the, pe and were the people of God. This God could not tolerate, and he purposed to do away with it all in one fell swoop. Moses, the temple, the kingdom, and the priesthood, in short, nothing else would be of any help, neither temple nor priesthood, but Christ only. If God had done that as regards his kingdom and priesthood, which he had ordered, established, and instituted, snatching it all away, much less will he set store by the pope, bishops, monks, and priests with their hoods and tonsures, who have neither been ordained nor instituted by him, but contrived and fabricated by men. They do not want God, so God says to them, If you do not want me to save you by grace, then I shall not save you according to your contrived spirituality." If you want nothing from me, I want nothing from you, nor anything of what you are and have. If I have not regarded the holiness of my own people under Moses, much less would I set store by you. Therefore we must get to the point where we cling solely to Christ and cast aside all perplexities, even though Pope, Turk, and we ourselves believed otherwise that to be a Christian we must cling firmly to Christ and his word and let nothing of a spiritual or secular nature deter us. It was his purpose to let himself be found, not at Jerusalem, but at Bethlehem. Bethlehem was not far at all from Jerusalem. Nevertheless, God did not, not want to give recognition to Jerusalem nor allow the governor of his people to be born in her, purposing thereby to reject false trust in the saints and teaching us that true holiness exists neither in the temple nor in spiritual ceremonies, but in himself. This is what the story teaches us. Let's look now at Micah's prophecy. And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah? For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel." This is a gladsome text, which not only testifies that Christ has come, but also teaches us why we should esteem and cling to him, and what kind of king and lord he is. He should be a lord of God's people, says the prophet, yet be born at Bethlehem and be the most despised man on earth. It is contradictory and shocking that a poor beggar, born in a lowly poor place, should be a ruler and lord of the people of Israel. The world looks at the matter like this, the one who is to be king and lord must have money, possessions, land, people, and power. But here the situation is, Bethlehem is small and poor, and yet out of Bethlehem comes a great mighty king and lord. From this it readily follows 
that we must not understand the dominion of the Lord as ruthless, like that of a tyrant who forces and burdens people. For this reason the prophet paints the picture very beautifully, saying, Bethlehem, thou art not the least. In other words, one need not be terrified by this king as of a tyrant, for there is neither power nor splendor, neither money nor possessions, neither sword nor firearm, neither horse nor knight of which we need be afraid. There is only abject poverty, lowliness, meekness, and humility, nothing at all which could cause a person to dread this being or kingdom. For who is going to be fearful of a child and a poor beggar? Of raw power one is rightfully fearful, and God's sovereign power in particular is awesome and to be feared. But here not majesty and power, but poverty is present. All the same, this poor child is a lord. So if he is a ruler and lord, and yet is born in poverty and wretchedness in the poor town of Bethlehem, what can his glory be other than that before the world he is poor, but rich in the spirit, and every kind of spiritual blessing? Before the world he should be as nothing, should not exercise tyranny or power, but be a poor, gentle, and friendly child. But in the spirit and in the spirituality he is to be a rich king and lord who would be everyone's benefactor. But wherein would his riches consist? Nothing other than that sin, death, righteousness, truth, life, and all else lie at his feet. That is the dominion of this child. And from this his people should draw benefit. Materially he does not want to help unless your salvation and his glory are concerned, for he himself is wretched and poor. Therefore no one must think of becoming a Christian in order to obtain money and possessions. This we might expect on the part of the Pope, who makes his fawning favorites into lords over great estates and divides up countries among them, as Daniel prophesied. But the dominion of this child is to be experienced and enjoyed solely in this, that he redeems us from sin and adorns us with righteousness before God, rescues us from death, and grants us everlasting life. Now then, in the spiritual realm there is another lord, namely the devil. He is a king and lord over sin and death. He creates timidity, despair, and terror. That is his spiritual kingdom. However, this child is likewise a spiritual king, who drives out the devil, redeems you from sin and death, removes you from the kingdom of the devil so that you become righteous, alive, joyful, and saved. This is his dominion. For since he has no earthly dominion and is yet to be Lord, he must have another dominion, namely that in his kingdom he makes a person righteous, pious, joyful, and blissful before God. While the devil, on the other hand, in his kingdom, subjects a person to sin so that he remains dead forever and lost eternally. Now, however, this king and lord Christ cannot govern as one who wants to subject people under sin and drive them to death and damnation, for that very kingdom of sin and death already belongs to its lord, the accursed devil. Nor, on the other hand, can this king govern in a worldly fashion because he's so poor and wretched. It follows, therefore, that this king, Christ, is not a secular king, nor of wicked spiritual nature, but a spiritual lord who is kind and gracious, and his kingdom is not a worldly kingdom or a spiritually tyrannical kingdom, as is that of the devil, but a merciful and blissful kingdom. That's the kind of Lord he is. Not a Lord of sin, death, and hellish fire, but a Lord of righteousness, life, heaven, and salvation. For I need a Lord who is able to make me, a lost and condemned creature, righteous again, redeem me from sin, death, and the devil, and bring me to heaven and everlasting life. 
This is where faith belongs, that you adhere zealously to God's word, as stated earlier of the wise men who correctly understood this passage of the prophet Micah. However, whoever willfully abandons the word and follows his own thinking will soon lose Christ because he regards him not as a gracious, merciful Lord, but as a judge and flees from him, from before him as from the devil. For that is the devil's bailiwick, to represent Christ differently to people, terrify them, and by means of sin finally to plunge them into hell. Our text attests that Christ was born in Bethlehem is a gracious Lord who would deliver all who believe in him from sin, death, and devil, and hell, and ultimately redeem them on Judgment Day. For on Judgment Day he will not come to condemn his own, but set them free from all evil, as St. Paul teaches in 2 Thessalonians 1.7. Much more could be said about how the poor, wretched child is a very mighty Lord over against the devil's great dominion and power, but this is enough for now. We shall save the rest for this afternoon. By means of the star of his holy word, may God graciously lead us with the wise men to his Son, Jesus Christ, and preserve us forever from every occasion of stumbling. Amen. This has been a sermon of Martin Luther on the occasion of Epiphany, preached at the parish church in the morning of 1532.